Hi, everyone. Welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. As you know, voting in the 2022 general election is underway. And today we're talking about California State Senate District 38. District 38 stretches along the coast from Orange County to San Diego County. It covers Mission Viejo, Camp Pendleton, Carlsbad, Encinitas, Del Mar, and La Jolla. There are two candidates running for this four-year term. Encinitas Mayor Catherine Blakespear, who is a Democrat, and small business owner Matt Gunderson, a Republican. Both candidates met with the San Diego Union-Tribune editorial board to discuss their stances on the issues. This interview has been edited and condensed, and in it, you're going to hear from the candidates on the topics of housing, Proposition 1, climate change, EVs, and more. First, you're going to hear from Catherine Blakespear and then Matt Gunderson. You can watch the full interview online at sandiegouniontribune.com slash election 2022. Thanks for listening. Okay, today the San Diego Union Tribune editorial board is joined by uh, Encinitas Mayor uh, Catherine Blakespear, who is running for the um, the Senate 38th district seat in, in California. And Mayor, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. Let me start. So in the, in the primary, we endorsed uh, Joe Kerr, who is no longer in the race, finished third. And so we're looking at, at both candidates. And I wanna bring up uh, at the outset some of the um, criticism that we had raised of you that I'm hoping you can address for us. Um, three points. Um, one is um, a broader question about housing and the attorney general's office um, putting Encinitas on blast for not following state housing law um, in, a, in a letter, something that his office has been doing up and down the state in a handful of, of places. I wonder if you could take a minute and explain what happened after that letter? What led up to that letter? I know this kind of may get into the weeds a little bit with the Encinitas Boulevard Apartments, but kind of the, the, the current state of that proposal. Okay, thank you. And I'm glad you're, that you're leading with those three things because those three things are top of mind for me. Um, and I'm glad that you're not bearing the lead. So thank you for that. Um, so housing in Encinitas has always been historically extremely difficult. And I would say that of all the things that I've worked on and things that I've accomplished in the, in the housing area, that is the area that I feel among the most proud as the mayor. Because when I became the mayor six years ago, we did not have a state compliant housing element. And we now do. We also faced multiple lawsuits over our failure to have a compliant housing element. And those lawsuits have all been settled. And the reality is that that we, I have, I'm a pro-housing mayor. So I feel like the, the reality is that we, when we look at poverty in this state and you think about what is it that's driving people to suffer with, with the burden of poverty, the housing, the lack of housing affordability is central to that for many, many families. And it's, and it's even the case for middle income and upper income families, not just lower income families. So Encinitas is the city that had the lowest amount of single family zoning of any city in the county. So that means that we did not have the zoning that accommodated apartment buildings or higher density housing. And we took two different plans to be compliant with state law to the voters both of those were rejected. And then we ended up in um, court and the judge said, you have 120 days to adopt a compliant plan. And we did do that, thankfully. But there, the, the reality of the attorney general sending us that letter 
I'll admit that I was actually grateful for that because in many ways, the, the difficulties that we face in Encinitas are, there are many residents who are just unwilling to see that there is a real, there's a threat of actual um, losing our zoning ability as a city and also having a state actually come down on you. I think that people feel like this is some sort of boogeyman, like that we can actually say no to housing in Encinitas. And the reality is, Housing is a good and we need it in order to build our community and we legally cannot say no to it. So we live under federal laws, we live under state laws, we have our own city regulations, which include our Prop A, which is a voter initiative, but we have to comply with the law and, and all cities do. And I think that's good because, because it does make sense that every city should have the both burden and opportunity of providing housing for all income levels. So our civic dialogue is dominated by the idea that we somehow are in a debate over whether we can add housing or have to add housing. And the reality is that that has been long settled. The question is really how, how can we add housing? And I think we can add housing in a way that builds community, that respects the community's built environment and character, but also provides the opportunity for types of housing that we haven't had enough of in the city of Encinitas and to really do our part. You know, every city and every county has to do their part or we're never gonna see a reduction in homelessness an increase in housing affordability. So, so the, to your question about the attorney general, but then also about some of these apart, the apartment buildings that, that we have approved, you know, the, the, the dispute with that developer and then the attorney general's involvement and the state housing and community development, HCD's involvement led to a better project. So we ended up with more affordable units than if we had approved it at the outset. So, so the criticism was over the not, denial of the project, but what that did was send us into a negotiation with the developer that led to a higher amount of per, a higher percentage of affordable units and some of these other things that were important to the community like the lighting being shaded and some of the other um, issues around some design things the ultimate height of certain sub stories and things those got better for the community as well so it did the project was better because of that and also i mean this project is not popular but it's the right thing to do because this is a major intersection in the city of Encinitas. It's a, it's a, it's the Encinitas Boulevard and um, Manchester and Rancho Santa Fe Road. So, so it's a commercial area right there. This is not buried in the in the wildland urban interface back in the backcountry. This is it, major routes for traffic, for evacuation, for all you know all the things that people would need to get to the places they need to go to go to the freeway. So, but but I will acknowledge that if you did a, if you ask people to vote to approve this project, it would unquestionably fail because people would rather say no to housing. But I think in many ways, when you're looking at something systemically, what is in the collective good, it's that we do have more housing. And also, I just want to say that in Encinitas, we have 15 sites that we upzoned, and those sites are scattered around the community so that every one of our five communities has to have at least some additional housing. So this is the only site in Alevenheim. And there are many people who, in Alevenheim who say they don't, you know, they don't want that, and I recognize that, and I hear the true anguish that they experience knowing that they are gonna have that there. But there are many projects that I've approved and been involved with, transportation projects and housing projects that when they are built, they actually just become part of the built environment and they're accepted and these are your new neighbors and they actually do add to the community. So I, I feel like housing 
although you dinged me for it in your in your non-endorsement in the primary, I do feel like housing, when you look at my whole record, is it is actually very positive because we now have a state compliant housing element. I've we have ended under my leadership as mayor, we on the city council have ended our housing lawsuits. We've provided already under construction or already built more than 330 affordable units that did not exist before that are the result of this. And, and most, almost most importantly, I'm an elected official who articulates the benefit of housing. So I am not, I am not saying, I'm not a NIMBY um, in my rhetoric. I'm not saying that we should close the door after us. I'm saying that we should be inclusive and we should provide the opportunities for people to access our high opportunity community to be in our, and go to our beaches and use our rail trail and be at our schools and to allow places for seniors and youth and our first responders and our teachers to live. You know, so all of the community building aspects of housing are something that I very much own. And, and we haven't had that in the past in Encinitas because, and many cities haven't, especially more affluent coastal cities. And this is a very deeply divided topic among, it cuts across party, it cuts across age, it cuts across nearly everything. So, so it, but, but I feel like this is a true North type of question, like, you mm -hmm. know, and I'm not going to pander and, 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 and say that, that I think we should um, say no to housing or we should just fight Sacramento or these kinds of things that people are always saying to me that they would like to see. Not everybody, of course, there are a lot of people who support this, but there are also a lot of people who don't. Yeah, and I appreciate the difficulty of, of your position in the context of your answer. So thank you for that. A, a follow-up, in the primary, you were asked uh, your, your position on Senate Bills 9 and 10, which essentially pr would provide more housing on, on, on lots. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, you, have you taken a position? Will you take a position now? What do you think of those two specific bills, nine and ten? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to take a position on previously passed bills that that are the law. I mean, there it, this is the law, and we live with the law as it's been passed. And so, but I will say that we have had no applications. We've had we don't have anything built because of SB nine and ten, despite this. I mean, first of all, it's only SB nine because SB ten you have to opt into. City of Encinitas did not do that. I don't, and I don't, I, I think San Diego might be the only city that opted into it, but uh, but SB9, we haven't had any applications to do uh, a, a lot split that creates a quad in that. So, um, you know, it, there was a, a feeling like this was gonna absolutely ruin these communities. And, and I think the Turner study was correct in its analysis, at least so far, of how many of these sites in the state of California can actually be lot split like that. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's limited. It might have, it will have some impact, but it won't be, it won't completely change neighborhoods as, as has the fear, really a fear mongering that is suggesting that. Let me, and let me bring up uh, one of the claims that you brought. This is, I live in the district. Uh, I've gotten a lot of campaign mail. I think 90% has come from your race. Um, oh, really? Where do you live? Which community? What? I live in La Jolla. Okay. So we're getting a ton of mail uh, on the race and abortion has, and I'm seeing a lot of TV ads, abortion has become a big part of this. He says that he would be, that he thinks he might be the only uh, pro-choice Republican in Sacramento if he were to be elected. So he says he's pro-choice. He says, he's go, you know, you can look at his record going back years, yet you say you're the only pro-choice candidate in the race. How do you square, how do you well, square that? So it's I it's absolutely disingenuous to say that you are pro-choice when you are endorsed by anti-choice organizations. You accept those endorsements. They that you sought them out. You filled out the questionnaire, and 
refusing to support Prop 1, which enshrines in our state constitution the right to an abortion. There'd be no reason to be pro-choice and not support Prop 1. Um, and, and, and also, I mean, yeah, he, he wants to start carving away at that, like to start, you know, basically talking about all the all these things like he's trying to contort himself because he knows the district is pro-choice, but he is not pro-choice. And, and, and the reality and that's I find that to be really galling and very really insulting to women, too, because because we this is like a five alarm fire. Like I see that this is the first time in our nation's history where we are actually taking away people's rights. And we see, we, I believe, and I know that women's right to determine when and whether and with whom to have children is central to her entire existence, to her autonomy, to her privacy, to her liberty. And that course of her life is changed forever if she has to carry a pregnancy to term that she doesn't want. And so the idea that there is not a Republican in the Congress, like even Lisa Murkowski and these people who say they're so modern and they're pro-choice, they did not stand up and support so, um, con congressional action that would have enshrined Roe into our constitution, our federal constitution. There is, There are no Republicans who are actually pro-choice because they do line up behind this anti-choice positioning. So we could be faced with a reality in this country in two years where the president and Congress are actually outlawing abortion. And we need people who give voice to the value and also mean it and also support Prop 1. Because if if he were actually, if he were on record as going against his party, because the Republican Party in California is against Prop 1, as supporting Prop 1 and in any way condemning the overturning of Roe, which he did not do, when the Dobbs decision came out, there was nothing public that he said that indicated that that he that he thought that was a bad decision or that that impacted anybody negatively. So you know these things like not speaking on the overturning of Roe, not supporting one, uh, Prop One, seeking the endorsement and having the endorsement of these anti-choice groups that are very extreme. These these groups they say that um, that abortion should be outlawed from conception. You know this does not indicate a pro-choice candidate. So so the idea that that he can claim that that lane while also being a Republican, while also getting the support of his party, while also, you know, this is just like that contortionist thing where it's just not true. He's not a champion for women, even though, you know, he wants to say he is. And he is not a pro-choice candidate, because what does it mean to be a pro-choice candidate if you don't do those other things? Um, let me uh, shift gears and. Uh... You've talked about climate change quite a bit during your uh, administration and your Q and A's to us. Um, so, you know, I, I don't need to ask you the question: Do you believe in climate change? Do you believe humans cause it? I know the answer to both of those is um, yes. But it, it, we asked about um, um, the, the 2035 guidance that the the state will ban new sales of fossil fueled cars. I'm assuming you, unlike your opponent, you support that. But my question is about the reality of it. Do you think that that's a realistic goal? And how, as having a seat in Sacramento, would you ensure that you know people who may not have the means to pay for environmental cars, who don't have battery hookups, you know, all these real problems um, that stand in the way of of of, uh, of a policy like that, would be settled in a way that doesn't leave a whole class of people behind, and that allows the state to meet its ambitious goal. Yes. Well, so just to confirm, yes, climate change is human caused, is existential threat. 
it, our, our struggle is to both reduce our emissions and also adapt to our changing climate. And that's drought, wildfire, sea level rise, you know, it's, it's air pollution, it's everything. Um, and so, so the, the reality, like I mentioned before about the transportation sector accounting for 50% of emissions about um, means that we have to be really serious about that sector. If we're thinking about scientifically, strategically reducing the emissions of the state of 40 million people, that is the fifth largest economy in the world, you know, we, we really have to take that very seriously. So I applaud the ambitious goals of our governor in this area and our legislature. I think, you know, we'll be driving gas cars for 50 more years because there'll be resale of the cars that people already have. Um, and I think just like you look at, you know, a photo from 1912, and then you look at a photo from 1925, and the amazing transformation from the horse and buggy and carriage period to cars and how they were, cars were only available for the rich. And then over time, the prices come down and we adapt our entire road network for cars and we have gas stations everywhere. And I mean, the huge, huge societal transformation that happened between the, that period in a relatively short time. I, I, feel, I feel hopeful and, and positive about our ability to transition. And I know also just from my work as the mayor in my city of Encinitas that in our very ambitious uh, building electrification ordinance where new buildings will be all electric and not be plumbs for gas with the idea that we don't wanna be putting in stranded infrastructure and extending the life of, of our dependency on oil and gas. The, the market is largely already provided for appliances that are the same cost. So we did a full analysis of, of the market effect of this for people who are building or renovating homes in the city of Encinitas. Um, and, and I mean, you can get a water heater that heats your, your gas electric, uh, electric water heater that's the same price as the gas water heater. And so in many ways, it's actually cheaper. And in some ways, you know, you think about putting like an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit in, if you don't, you have to put in electricity, you have to flick on the lights and, and all that, but you don't have to put in the gas line. Um, so, so in some ways you could say that it actually reduces cost because you don't have to do that, that part of the, of the infrastructure. So, uh, you know, I think we, it's good to have these, these out, these goals, you know, there are things like Diablo Canyon where there's a goal set and then actually there's a reality that kicks in and then they keep it going a little longer. Right. So, so who knows really what will end up happening and, um, it would be uh, 13 years, right, from now uh, with that with that goal. But I think it's really good we have it, and it, it is unquestionably the case that if you don't set these outside goals, you don't really know where you're going. It, it you you're just you're you're waffling around, and you're saying, okay, well, there's this and there's that, and there's status quo, and there you know. So I do think it's great that that we that he set that outside goal. But I also just want to recognize, because I think this actually isn't talked about it as much, but is that the electric, building an electric car does have that carbon footprint and it's the battery and where we get the precious metals at the bottom of the ocean and other places to, you know, there. this isn't the magic bullet, right? It, it, so this to me goes back to why we need to have we need to have better transit. We need to make it easy to bike and walk short distances. We need to solve for this first mile, last mile problem. Um, and and you know some of the things that you see like kids on e-bikes, you know between the ages of ten and sixteen before they can drive. I mean some of these 
really transformational. They're, they're always growing pains, but transformational technologies that are, that are E, they're electric, you know, that are creating a different transportation world. So, so I see a lot of these things happening in parallel, along with the autonomous cars and the connected vehicles and all this kind of stuff. Can I just say one thing before, I know we're at 11.05 and these are supposed to be about an hour, but I just wanted to make sure that I um, just share that the district is 70% in San Diego County and I am a successful elected official in San Diego County for eight years. So my opponent lives in um, the Orange County section, which is where about 30% are. Um, and you know, you are the San Diego County newspaper of record. Um, and so, you know, you have a close-up look at all of the things that I've been doing over many years, and all of my record is public. And he has the ability to have opinions, but has not had to make hard choices, has not been in the public spotlight. And in many ways, the three things that you brought up in uh, the primary were all things related to my governance. They were related to being in the public eye, to making decisions. Um, and so my hope is that you can consider the totality of, of the, the good decisions, the thoughtfulness, the approach to governance, to the ability to embrace this large district, to work for its betterment, and ultimately to be effective. Because I think that's really what you want. You want people who are able to solve problems and to be effective for the district and for the state. And I, I do feel I'm the strongest candidate to be able to do that. Um, not, not just because of being able to work with the people who are already there, who are in power. And I know that sometimes there you have a perspective of we need balance. And so we don't want to have more people of the, the same party in California, but um, I would just say that I think you're more able to make a difference when you're in the room where it happens to quote Hamilton, <laughs> or if you wanna, it, yes, it, um, we could say in the arena if we wanted to, to quote Roosevelt, but it- You can it, quote it, Hamilton. I'm a, it, I'm a musical theater family myself, Liz, so I'll, okay. I'll die that. Okay, me too, I love Hamilton. <laughs> We're, I, I'm actually, yes, anyway, so, um, but so, so that's how you're able to make a difference. You know, it's not from shouting outside, it's from being inside and actually talking uh, to the people and working to make compromise and then making change. And I think I've been a very effective leader in the city of Encinitas and we've done a lot and we've done a lot more than some cities are doing. I mean, we really are leaders in many ways. And I think articulating a vision and then being able to operationalize the aspirational by working toward it day after day is 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 a skill and is a commitment and is something that I bring to this candidate to my candidacy. You brought up the cost of living. Let's segue into housing. You opposed Senate bills nine and ten. Your opponent didn't take a position on those um, either in the primary or when we interviewed her. Um, uh, you know, but she paints herself as as pro housing and says she would work to create it at all levels of uh, all income levels. How would you characterize your approach to housing and, and explain your opposition to those particular bills uh, which passed in Sacramento? Yeah, well, I think it's disingenuous for Catherine Blakesford to tell you not take a position on SB 9 and 10 because she's taken them over and over again as mayor of Encinitas where she's rolled over and played dead for Tony Atkins and the interests that exist in Sacramento. Um, she has not fought for Encinitas and what is best for the city. And she's acquiesced to Sacramento. And I think that dovetails on exactly where I come from on this position of local control. I oppose SB 9 and 10 because I truly believe that the very best decisions are made as close to home as possible. We all can agree that Vermont and California aren't the same state. We also can agree that 
A solution that might work in San Jose doesn't necessarily work in Cardiff by the Sea or Olivenheim or in San Juan Capistrano for that matter. So we, we've got to allow our local communities to make the decisions that make sense for them given their infrastructures, their community character and their needs and their, um, their wants, I guess, to some extent. And you know, we've got to allow, if, if Sacramento is going to incentivize those programs, then put money down into Encinitas as a city and say, here are the funds that we can use to address the issue of affordable housing in your community. And then let them, let them locally decide how best do we address this issue? Because there isn't anybody who doesn't want people to have affordable homes. There, you know, it's not an issue of opposing affordable housing. It's an issue of how do we do this effectively and pragmatically to the point where we can actually enhance our communities versus have a negative impact on them. But that the local control theory doesn't work. It has created a stasis in California housing construction. The legislative analyst office has put out studies many times over the years that says when you give local control, you invest power into a small handful of individuals who have the ear of the planning board and the ear of the city council and nothing gets done. So for you to say that local decisions always work out for the best, or maybe the theory is that they always work out for the best, they haven't worked out for the best in California. California is the poverty capital of the world because housing costs so much. The problem was anticipated 18 years ago reports by, uh, by the Public Policy Institute of California that unless you force more housing to be constructed, more housing will not be constructed. So I, I just feel like you're giving a 2010 answer to a 2022 question. How can you say local control can solve this problem? Well, I, I, you know, I, I simply believe that we have to empower our local jurisdictions to make a decision that's best for their community. And maybe the problem isn't completely solvable. I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, again, I'm an outsider and I will tell you that I don't, people ask me what's the toughest thing about the campaign trail. And I'll say, well, learning all the acronyms, commissions and agencies that are nuanced impact, have nuanced impact on all of our legislation, but I'm not the dumbest dog in the kennel. And I do believe that I will be able to put together a thought process that can really highlight the right questions and point out the right issues in terms of making good decisions for our district. Now, with that said, yeah, there's a real dilemma between is there space and is there an environment that can accommodate this additional housing in these already developed communities that doesn't negatively impact the public safety, doesn't negatively impact the infrastructure elements, and doesn't negatively impact the intermingling of these communities. I mean, what they do in Encinitas does impact their neighboring communities. And, you know, so I think you have to believe in the, the, the good intentions of people in the sense on a local level to do what's best for their community. And, you know, we might differ on the significance of local control, but at the core of my philosophical being, I think people in Encinitas know better than people in Sacramento what works for their community. And sticking with the issue of housing, um, on housing affordability, in our, in, in our Q&A, um, you talked about sequel reform as a great place to start. We're with you there. I mean, we think that that, you know, um, well-intended law, but has, you know, caused some problems. What else would you do 
to, to, to bring relief to Californians immediately or as soon as possible on the issue of housing affordability. Because we people have been talking about secret reform for decades, uh, and, and it's, you know, well, I, it's, yeah. it's paralyzing for our housing or our housing development um, sector when at least half of the housing permits are, you know, tied up in litigation over CEQA issues. And, you know, that's part of what really stalls the game. And so we've got to somehow get back to a, or get, get to a situation where it isn't an immediate $200,000 higher cost of construction in California than it is across the state line in Arizona for a, the same, the same home. So, um, I think it's important that we address CEQA and we address some of the, there's, you know, the requirement of having certain safety elements inside homes, et cetera, might be something that we have to look at in terms of just the ratcheted up the increased cost of building here. Um, you know, unfortunately there's, at the end of the day, there's some point where we can't protect people from themselves all the time. And if it is, becomes a significant financial impact on, you know, the cost of building here, we, we need to address it. And I think it isn't just affordability. If we, if we can address the cost of living across all sectors of you know, life here, then maybe we'll be able to afford a little bit more of a home. I mean, I've supported a middle-class tax cut where there's no state tax for anybody who makes under $50,000 or any family that makes under $100,000. That's only a $15 billion hit to our state budget, but that does matter to individual families in terms of their ability to put food on their table, buy gas for their car, et cetera. And you know, we've got to be creative about how we make California more affordable at all levels and not just in housing. Um, another issue that, that came up, um, one of the largest issue in the campaign, she's really campaigning hard on this, is um, Prop 1 and abortion and, and pro-choice. She says that she's the only pro-choice candidate uh, in the race you say that you would be, might be the only pro-choice Republican in Sacramento if you won. So I guess what is your position on, um, on, on abortion? How is it documented? How far back does it date? Can you kind of take a second and explain that? Because that's become a big wedge issue in the campaign. Yeah, sure. You know, I think this is an interesting dynamic because this is a typical politician's approach to mincing words and you know, basically telling lies. I am a pro-choice Republican. I've been pro-choice and on the record that way dating back to 1994. And so this is not a new position for me. And I honestly think her position on abortion is the extreme position. She calls me an extremist. And uh, I think that that's, it's a situation where she should be looking at the, in the mirror. I do oppose late-term abortion and partial birth abortion, and I support parental notification laws. On the topic of Prop 1, I mean, Prop 1 opens up the Pandora's box of late-term and partial birth abortions, allowing abortion up to any point in time, and I, I think that's too extreme. I think we should look at the codifying California's existing law that states abortion is permissible up until six months, and unless the life of the health of the mother is impacted, and it can happen after that. And I think that's a reasonable position to take. Um, I have four daughters. You know, people say to me about the parental notification issue, well, you know, what about the person who isn't comfortable talking to their parents? I said, well, 
first of all, in my heart of hearts, I really believe that no minor child should be asked to go through that process. It's incredibly emotional and traumatic without having some adult counsel. So let's work toward the, you know, the one-offs where there can be a trusted nurse, a trusted teacher, another trusted adult that participates in that notification process. So a minor child is not expected to endure that decision on their own. um, When we asked her about this, she explained herself by describing you as a contortionist who is not opposed, um, um, you know, made no public comment when Roe v. Wade was overturned. As you said, you just laid out your opposition to Prop One. She 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 doesn't. Uh, she criticized you for not supporting Prop One. Said you sought sought and accepted the endorsement of, of anti-choice groups, while also being endorsed by the Republican Party, which has taken a position on this. Yeah. Well, do I, wanna, I, I don't want to belabor this question, but do you want to respond to those particular points? Well, you know, th- I have been very clear what my position on Prop One is. I mean, I don't know where she thinks I'm contortioning, um, because candidly. I have answered every question of anybody who's asked me and my position on abortion is well articulated on our website. On the issue of, uh, I forget what was the other question in- um, It was, uh, she just listed several points about- Oh, I know they seeking the endorsements. That was seeking the endorsements, I'm sorry. We didn't seek those endorsements. Those endorsements were granted. We didn't fill out a questionnaire. You know, the issue that we sought them is, you know, another false statement on her part. If they chose to endorse me, they looked at my position as being more mainstream than her extreme position supporting abortion on demand and late-term abortion. Thank you. Let's jump into some of the issues, starting with climate change. Um, There was recently a bluff collapse, closed, you know, transit between Orange County and, 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 and San Diego County. Uh, there have been bluff collapses in Encinitas. Um, what, what would you do to, to, to address that particular issue? Well, first of all, I believe there's climate change and I believe that humans are impacting our climate on a daily basis. And we need to forcibly and, but methodically and pointedly or you know, address what we can to address our environmental challenges. In terms of the bluff collapses, you know, these beaches along this district are are the economic driver for many of our communities here. And so they have to be one of our number one priorities. And they did a sand restoration project in 2001. Then they did a sand restoration project in 2011. Science tells us that we need to do it at least every 10 years. And they didn't do it in 2021 because there was political infighting with and they couldn't come to a consensus of how to get it done. That's not okay. I mean, the powers that be have to accept the fact that we're gonna reach some of these issues on a collective, you know, compromise situation. And we can't, you know, forego our fiduciary obligation to the citizens just because we have political, you know, division about how we're going to restore this bluff or that bluff or how who's going to pay for this project. I mean, you know, the sand restoration project, you know, has to be a priority. Thank you. And thank you for asking my next question, which was, we have to ask this of all candidates now, do you believe in climate change? Do you believe humans cause it? You answered yes to both. My question on this, and we asked the same thing of Catherine Blakespear is, 
13 years from now is this 2035 requirement that no, and this, you know, you approach this from with understanding of the auto industry, that uh, no new sales of gas powered cars are going to be allowed in California. Um, you've described that as, um, uh, uh, let me see if I can put my finger here on the, on the notes as a tall order, basically. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm paraphrasing. What, yeah. what, what would you do if that is the policy to facilitate that? Would you seek to overturn that policy or change that policy or lobby folks to think of something else? Or do you, would you try to put some things in place so that people don't get left behind? Because there's obviously some costs involved that you've talked about as we move towards that transition. Yeah, I think the number one issue with it, it, well, I guess there's two issues. There is the feasibility and the, you know, relevance uh, or the reality perspective of it just doesn't exist. And then if it did happen, it would be done on the backs of California's middle class. I mean, again, we are driving this move towards less reliance on fossil fuels on the shoulders of California's middle class. And we're watching them leave the state because they have to and they can't afford to live here. And so do we need to make a transition to lower reliance on fossil fuels? Absolutely. But we have to do it in a pragmatic, methodical perspective that is realistic. I mean, people will ask me, how can Governor Newsom say this if it can't happen? I'm like, because Governor Newsom won't be governor in 2035 and the can will be kicked to somebody else to handle. And our electric grid doesn't support it. Our infrastructure doesn't support it. And I was in a meeting three weeks ago with people from Ford Corporate and they said, look, manufacturing can't produce those cars this quickly. And what's that going to do? It's going to drive up the cost of electric cars in California, again, burdening the lower and the middle class. And, you know, I mean, if we want to talk about tax incentives for lower and middle class to, you know, purchase electric vehicles and things like that, to make it all more, the transition more affordable all day long, I can support that. But setting these esoteric, you know, targets that sound good to some segments, but aren't based in reality, that's not a solution to the problem. Can I, uh, one of the um, things I've noted is um, you were recruited by Patricia Bates, um, obviously a successful uh, incumbent turned out. Um, what does that say that, that the person in that seat kind of you know, asked if you would serve and, and that you are doing it? Um, what, what should voters read into that? Well, I think, you know, I was never wildly politically active um, prior to selling our dealerships. I was supportive of candidates and such, but I was very active in the community. I was served 10 years on the Mission Hospital Board. I was on the Saddleback College Foundation Board. Prior to that, I was a youth sports coach. I was busy raising my family and employing 200 plus people. But I think they came to me because they saw me as having an opportunity to give back to the state of California. Unlike most people who sell their businesses in California these days, we're not leaving the state. We're staying. I have four daughters, two of which are still in high school. If I'm still in high, if I'm still staying here, my choice is to sit on the sidelines and complain or jump in and try to make a little bit of a difference. And I think there's value and great value in having an outsider come to the table that can come to Sacramento with a business perspective 
with a different set of eyes that says, look, government isn't always the solution. Government can be part of the solution, but it isn't solitary, the solution. And let's figure out how do we make government more responsive, more efficient, and more productive in terms of solving California's problems. And I think Pat Bates is a perfect example of somebody who has been a moderate Republican who has worked across the aisles and she and worked with Democrats. And she sees me in a very much the same vein as somebody that can go to Sacramento and have a conversation across the table, build the relationships and build the respect that's necessary to perhaps open their eyes and ears and minds a little bit about some of the unintended consequences that come from their legislation. I'm not naive enough to believe that they're gonna look at me and say, oh yeah, Matt, you're so smart. But I do believe that there's an opportunity to ask the right questions where maybe they go back to their office and say, you know what, he kind of has a point. So I think that's the opportunity that um, Pat Bates saw in me and a number of other people saw in me that I have the ability to go to Sacramento and you know, be, be involved and consequential in the conversation in Sacramento so we can try to solve some problems. Uh, on the close, let's get 30 seconds um, to not talk about the campaign distinctions as you just drew, but on the candidacy. Why should voters choose you over your opponent? Well, I, I think flat out, if you think everything in Sacramento is going really well, then I'm probably not your guy. But if you want an outsider with a business mind and a fresh perspective to go to Sacramento and be a problem solver, then that's what you've got here. I mean, I, you know, at the end of the day, there's something in my DNA that believes public service is valuable and that more non-traditional candidates should be participating. And I stepped up to do it this time because I think we need to fight for California. And I think we do not need another progressive far left Democrat in Sacramento because admit and reduce even further the number of Republicans. We have to bring together both parties and sit down at the table and have a conversation where we can get together, compromise and solve some of California's problems. I mean, one party rule doesn't help anybody anywhere, whether it's a city council, a state or any other state in the United States. One party rule is not productive government, if you ask me. We need the check and the balance in the conversation. And so I think it's important that we, you know, you send a pragmatic problem solver to Sacramento. Thanks again for tuning in to the San Diego News Fix. For more election coverage, including information about the more obscure offices, you can go to sandiegouniontribune.com slash election 2022. Thanks for listening. <laughs>